Hey there, welcome to another episode of Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we are going to reimagine our future together, which I know sounds pretty ambitious because it is, but luckily for us, we've got a couple of brilliant people here to walk us through it. First up, Ijeoma Aluo, who you might know from her New York Times bestselling book, So You Want to Talk About Race. Her latest book examines the legacy of white male supremacy and then proposes a new white male identity free from racism and sexism. Then we got New Yorker writer and historian Jill Lepore. She's going to tell us about the first company in America that tried to predict the future using computers to figure out human behavior. Then we're going to get some music from the Bengsons. So we're going to be talking about the distant future today, but the immediate future? Well, that involves another fascinating episode of Livewire, which gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? It's going great. Are you ready to play another round of Sly Station <laughs> Location Identification Examination? I'm rolling up my sleeves as we speak. This is where I describe a place for you and you try to figure out the place that I am talking about, okay? Okay. This town is home to the largest expanse of coastal sand dunes in North America. Okay. It's also the home of a chainsaw sculpting championship. Coastal sand dunes? Yes. Now, does coastal have to mean ocean? This one does. It means ocean. It means ocean. Okay. Uh, uh, Florence, Oregon? Oh, you are so close. Reedsport, <gasps> Oregon. I was so close. Ah. Where we are on KLFR down there in Reedsport, Oregon. So thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Good luck at the chainsaw competition this year. I'm going to get my car and drive down to that <laughs> next year. That's good. That sounds fun. You should enter it. I'd like to see you <laughs> wielding a Husqvarna. See how you do. Hey, should we get to the show? Sure, let's do it. All right, take it away. From PRX, it's Livewire. This week, writer Ijeoma Aluo. Just the desire to do good doesn't actually make you one of the good guys. It's what you're doing and how you're learning and how you're investigating your actions. Historian and author Jill Lepore. At the end of the day, you sometimes feel like 
someone's been sort of messing with your brain, like as if you're in a 1960s like conspiracy theory Hollywood thriller. And music from the Bengsons. I'm your announcer, Elena Fasarello, and now the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Uh, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks everyone for tuning in. We've got a fascinating show for you this week. Of course, we asked the Livewire listeners a question, as we always do. The question this week was, tell us a small wish you have for the future. And we are going to hear those answers coming up in just a few minutes. First, though, it is time for the best news we heard all week. It's our little reminder that there is good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what is the best news you heard all week? Okay, so Luke, did you ever read or see the book slash movie Little Women? Very much so. I uh, have four younger sisters. Ah. And so it was as if I was a random male character who was not in the original <laughs> plot of Little Women, but I got to live it with my four sisters. So do you remember that when the March girls started their own newspaper up in the attic? Uh-huh. Sure. Real life version of that just happened in a Minneapolis neighborhood. <laughs> it's like so perfect that it's happening in Minneapolis too. Yes, very Minneapolis for these three young ladies. They're ages nine to 11, Gabriella, Chris, and I think Lucia or Lucia. They, as a pandemic project, started a homemade newspaper called the Ewing South Post. They hand deliver it. Little uh, Chris is the circulation manager mm-hmm. to about 30 houses in their general vicinity. And it's a very important to them that it's a paper copy of the newspaper. It's not like online or anything like that. It includes neighbor profiles, comics, artwork from their devoted readers. And it is now in its 15th edition. <laughs> they did 15 of these? Yeah. And it's, I'm sure like an amazing project for them, but can you imagine how nice it must feel like from May, 2020, when we were all really locked down to now to have this sort of lovely record by the community's young people. That's incredible. I bet it's a good read too. It's hyper local. Mm-hmm. There's a decent chance that if you send in a letter to the editor, they will publish it. Yes. And it's very well copy edited because they have Lucia doing that. She's the copy editor. That's incredible. I um, saw this story about BJ Novak that is my oh, yeah. favorite or at least oddest piece of news I saw this week. So if you happen to be buying some face paint in Uruguay, okay, <laughs> or maybe you're buying an electric razor in China or a poncho in some parts of Europe, or maybe even like some Swedish cologne, you may notice that the person on the packaging looks like Ryan from The Office, the U.S. version of The Office. And that's because it is, in fact, B.J. Novak, the actor, who realized some time ago that someone had uploaded a photo of him to some sort of website that's supposed to be basically public domain. Oh, uh, it's like stock images. <laughs> stock images, right? Like pictures of people doing things that you can use I guess on your website or to sell your product and you don't actually owe them any money. Now this was a mistake. I didn't BJ Novak had not released his likeness to be on the cover of an Uruguayan face paint product. <laughs> but his picture ended up there and he is on all of this stuff all over the world. Did they take his image and then cover it in face paint for the ad? They did. <laughs> it is like he has like this blue 
face paint with like a white stripe through it. The funniest thing is there's only one picture of him. Oh, so no. all of these products, it's not like he sat down for like a stock photo modeling shoot and did a lot of things. <laughs> it's just this one picture that all these products have just kind of like photoshopped and, you know, put his head on someone like riding a bike. It's like, it's, but it's just this one picture of him. It's like the strangest meme ever. Right. Like a corporate meme. <laughs> so, I mean, he actually has, uh, they talked to a lawyer in this article that I was reading and, you know, he sort of has grounds for some kind of legal action because, you know, they're using the fame of BJ Novak to sell hmm. Swedish cologne. But this is what I thought was kind of fun. He wrote about this on Instagram and he said, I am too amused to do anything about this. <laughs> what a great <laughs> response. Right? That's probably the right reaction there. So the fact that there's one less lawsuit bouncing around the universe involving, you know, face paint from Uruguay, I think that's probably <laughs> the best news that I heard this week. Let's welcome our first guest over to the show. Uh, she's been on Livewire a bunch of times, in fact, four times talking about her writing. Last time we had her on was back in 2018 to talk about a New York Times bestseller, So You Want to Talk About Race. Now she's got another book out uh, that Publishers Weekly calls An Essential Reckoning. The book is titled Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. Take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Ijeoma Oluo, recorded last year here on Livewire. Ijeoma Lua, welcome back to Livewire. Nice to be here. How did you arrive at the particular idea for this book? It was really kind of born out of frustration. You know, I've been writing and speaking on issues of, of race and gender for years now. And especially since 2016, there's been this kind of fixation on like, why are white men mad? What's this white man like they just fell from the sky? And what I wanted was people to understand the patterns to our society and why things are the way they are. The way in which, you know, I and many other people of color and women of color look at these things and we can recognize, we can see history and what's happening right now. I wanted, I wanted everyone to really see that. So I decided to kind of, you know, paint that picture. You use a phrase early in the book, works according to design. What does that exactly mean? You know, it's a phrase that's kind of what I and many other people who do similar work say to ourselves when we see these inequities and oppressions and, you know, outrages that are happening around the country. A lot of times people will say, how could this happen? Something's wrong. The system's broken. And what we keep reminding ourselves and what I want the reader to understand is this is actually the way our systems are designed to work. This oppression, this exploitation, this violence is actually baked into our systems. So it's not an aberration. It's the way it's supposed to work and it's the way it's always worked. Do you feel like the people who set these systems up in place of, of white oppression were thinking of it in terms of white oppression in their own minds as they were building them? Or were they thinking about it as just looking out for their own interests and everyone else's needs and rights be damned? I mean, we are in a hyper-capitalist system. So first and foremost, the people with the most power, mostly white men, are a select few who I don't think actually built this system, you know, or the beginnings of this system out of specific animus towards, you know, women or people of color. What they wanted was to make money and they wanted to exploit as many people as possible. 
But it's important to recognize that a story of power and oppression was written to get working class, middle class white men to do their part in making money for the richest and most powerful white men and to keep them rich and powerful. And so it was an exploitation, right? And saying, oh, you know, your reward for doing this is that you're always going to do better than people of color, especially black people in this country. Mm -hmm. You're always going to have power over women. You may never get the power economically that you think you're due, but if we distract you and offer this, you'll make sure Mm -hmm. that things keep going the way they're going in order to uphold Mm hypercapitalism. There's so many parts of this book, Ijoma, where you kind of put words to something that I had floating around in my brain, but hadn't really thought of in the kind of clear way that you describe it. One of the things is this kind of like hero complex that a certain category of white men tend to carry around with them. Even you mentioned somebody in your extended family. Can you kind of talk about that? Because that was something I felt a sense of, but couldn't really describe the way you do. Yeah, absolutely. The thing about an identity that's built off of, you know, um, conquer, right? The ability to overcome and conquer other people means that that's kind of where you, your definition of manhood and success is tied up in. And, and we see this, right, in our stories, in our films of, you know, the lone white man who took on this great evil to save his family. And so often this idea is tied into manhood. And we see this politically. Popular politicians have to create this enemy that's coming for you and your family. What happens though is that when your manhood is tied to this definition, if there isn't an enemy, you have to create it. You have to have this sense of power so you can feel successful. And so like my relative in there, sometimes, you know, white men will seek out and say, you know, Muslims are out to get us or black people with guns are coming and they may not have seen a, a Muslim person in their neighborhood in a month. No one's going to their town. You know, no one wants to stop by their suburb and cause any trouble. But it gives that feeling that you're doing something, that you're powerful, that you're fulfilling these goals of white manhood. And it's dangerous because these are real people that we're turning into enemies. These are real people that we are making into threats and denying, you know, the full protection of the state because we've defined the people who need to be protected as who white men want to protect and the enemies as everyone else. Uh, this is Livewire Radio. We're talking to Ijeoma Aluo. Her latest book is Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of... White Male America, I'm Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. Um, You say in the foreword, Ijeoma, of this book that your contention is not that every white male is mediocre, but that white male mediocrity is the baseline and that the systems are set up to essentially enforce and protect that. What are some of those things that jump out at you about the way it's enforced and protected? You know, I think we see this even in, in the standard response to change or even the slogan, Make America Great Again. What we're talking about, right, is a time where supposedly every white man, because we we have to be honest, this promise is something made to white men, could just get a job. You know, it didn't matter what their skill set was. They could get a good job and they could feel comfortable and powerful. But the truth is, is A, it never worked like that. But B, it was often skewed that way to, to kind of reserve what there was for white men by taking from other people. So time and time again, that same ease, that same access was never afforded to women and people of color. But the story was, is that we haven't deserved it. We aren't talented enough. We haven't worked hard enough. But whenever we say, let's let's look at what the contributions of other people are, let's change the way we do things to make things more inclusive. The response is, now that's an effort that white men shouldn't have to put out. And so there's this idea that, White men were born deserving 
health, wealth, well-being. They were deserving power. They were deserving to feel represented politically. They were deserving to see their bosses look like them, their presidents look like them. But they didn't actually have to do anything for it. And the thought that they would, anytime we have these efforts, and we see this around discussions around Me Too, right? The thought that a white man couldn't grab someone's butt at work, that effort to relate to women in a way that wasn't sexualized was too much to ask. This is, this is also part of that mediocrity. The fact that you never have to investigate. You never have to try something new. You don't have to grow to accommodate other populations that are in your midst. And it's very dangerous. It's dangerous not only to women and people of color, but it's also dangerous to white men themselves who feel like they can't grow and change. And they actually can. And it really stymies everyone. It stymies us because we have to be held back in order to keep this impression that white men are successful. But it also stymies white men who may well want to be better than this. This is Livewire from PRX. We are talking to the writer Ijeoma Aluo about her latest book, Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back with much more. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm-hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we... We are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, And, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to livewireradio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to Livewire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com slash livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. 
remember to head to zbiotics.com slash livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are talking to the writer Ijeoma Oluo about her latest book, Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. One of the chapters in this book, Ijeoma, talks about white men kind of showing up at some sort of social justice movement moment and then centering themselves in the story immediately. From your perspective, what would be a more helpful way for a, a white guy to, to be an ally in a situation like that? You know, I would say, first and foremost, it's, you have to make peace with what the end result of real progress looks like, which means at the end, you maybe don't get an award. Maybe you're not centered. Maybe this isn't your hero story. You have to make a piece with that in the beginning because a lot of times the idea, and this is the way we talk about it in media. How many of these movies have we seen, right? Of the clueless white person who meant well, but didn't know how bad racism was. And then he found out and then he punched out the racist and then he was the hero. And the whole arc is him, his growth, his redemption, people appreciating him and what he does. And so I think recognizing it's going to look different and then recognizing that's going to make you uncomfortable, that just the desire to do good doesn't actually make you one of the good guys. It's what you're Mm -hmm. doing and how you're learning and how you're investigating your actions. But often that's not how it's sold. When we talk about asking people to be allies, we spend so much time saying, this is how you're going to benefit. This will be great. You're going to be better. And whenever it's tough, whenever you don't feel like you are getting something out of it, maybe when you feel like not only are you not feeling better, but you found out that maybe you kind of suck, then (laughs) you want to leave because it's not what you were promised. And so we have to change the way we talk about this. But white men really need to come in with better, you know, with different and more accurate ideas of what this is going to look like in the end if they want to be useful in struggles for justice. Another question kind of adjacent to that is the question of, Emotional labor, because I I think obviously the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement caused a lot of white people to have to really kind of reassess where they fit into the world and if they were actually, uh, you know, hurting people of color, even if they didn't realize they were. And the first thing a lot of us did was turned to our black friends or other people and said, hey, how should I do this better? And a piece of feedback that I heard from a number of people was, I don't know, like, I don't want to have to explain this to every single uh, white person I know. (laughs) So I guess (laughs) calling on you further to do some emotional labor, Ijeoma, um, what's a way in which people in your real life who are white, who want to try to understand how to be better in this, what's a way that they've approached you that has, has worked and what's a way that has not been so helpful as far as them trying to educate themselves? Where I see it's helpful is when people reach out and say, hey, you know, I was curious about this. So I went and looked up what you've said about this or what other people have already said about this. And does this feel right? You know, I'm just checking. This is what I'm going to, this is what I'm moving forward. Show them that you've done the work to Mm -hmm. honor over 400 years of activism that, you know, we've been doing to talk about this and name it, right? Um, But also I think it's important to recognize that 
we are trying to survive this. You know, I, I, I've had to point this out so many times. I'm not on a mission to create a kinder, gentler white person, especially not white men. I'm trying to survive. I'm trying to change these systems that are not crushing people. Mm-hmm. And that means that I'm busy, <laughs> you know? And so the idea <laughs> yeah. like that my end goal isn't your enlightenment. My end goal isn't your edification. My end goal is is my survival and the survival of other people of color and especially women of color in this, in this country. And then look it up, honor our work and, and then do the work within whiteness. I think that's one of the things that people are so reluctant to do. They want to put a sign up. People want to say that they, they gave money to a thing. They want to say they bought a book, but they don't actually want to talk to their white peers. They don't actually want to engage the systems they work in. And that's the work that needs to be done. You don't even have to tell us it's being done. We'll feel it. Um, when you feel like you have to go and report to, to the Black people in your lives, people of color in your lives, what you're doing, chances are then you're not doing something that is impactful enough for them to feel it without you saying something. And maybe you need to refocus. The conclusion of this book poses the question, can white manhood be more than this? Do you think it can be? Yes. I do. I mean, I don't know what it will take. I don't even know if we would call it white manhood in the end. That's up to that's up to white men, right? Mm-hmm. It's their identity and their ideology. But we're human beings, you know? I, I believe in the capacity of all human beings to grow and change. These systems were built by people. These identities were built by people. We can change it. We just have to believe we can. We have to understand that whatever risk you're taking to give up the privilege and power you have, the identity you have, it has to be better than this. And it will be better than this. You just have to, you know, force through the painful growth and the uncomfortable parts of it. But I wouldn't do this work if I didn't believe in people. You know, there's no sense in spending all of my time digging up all these painful histories and facts Mm -hmm. that keep me up night if I didn't believe that we could learn from it and grow and change. I honestly do believe that it's possible. Well, it's a powerful piece of writing. Uh, the book is Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America by Ijeoma Aluo. Ijeoma, thank you so much for coming on the show again. It's nice to see you. It's great to see you again. That was Ijeoma Aluo right here on Livewire. Her latest book is Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America, and it is available now. Hey, special thanks this episode to Michael Rutledge of Boulder, Colorado. Michael is part of the Livewire League of Extraordinary Listeners, a community of generous folks who support us with a donation each month. And that is really vital to what we're doing here because it's basically how we're able to make the show each week. So thank you, Michael Rutledge, for supporting Livewire. This is Livewire. Of course, each week we like to ask Livewire listeners a question because we're sort of talking about an imagined future this week Mm -hmm. on the show. We ask the listeners to tell us a small wish you have for the future. Elena, you have been collecting those up. What are you seeing? How about this one from Maria? I wish I could clone my cats. (laughs) I hate to tell you this. I think you actually can do that, right? The future is now. Barbara Streisand cloned her puppies and gave like one of them to the daughter of her A&R man or something. I remember that story. I mean, it raises the question, is it the same dog if you've cloned it from a beloved dog or is it a new, maybe slightly off version? I just feel like Stephen King 
mm-hmm. made it so that I don't ever, you know, I think I always just kind of want to say goodbye. Yeah, Pet Cemetery did some real reputational damage yeah. to the idea of creating <laughs> versions of your pets that have maybe left this mortal coil. <laughs> but again, hey, whatever that listener wants to do, I support it. What's another uh, small wish that someone has for the future? Kristen's small wish is, I wish for easy packing of stuff as we fall clean. And that just makes me feel very guilty because I don't fall clean and I can't even imagine a kind of fall cleaning in which you would pack stuff. Like, it seems pretty intense. Wow. So this person, this listener, actually, like, when fall comes around, the summer items are somehow put in boxes and then put somewhere and then saved for when it's summer again. Yeah, I am not capable of that kind of planning. I just moved (laughs) apartments, Elena, and I will probably have this place unpacked about 12 months from now when my lease is up. (laughs) Just in time. And then if I, you know, it's kind of like Laundry Mountain. You ever have that thing where you're just pulling clothes off of a pile of laundry? Yeah. And then it's kind of so small that you're like, well, this is this isn't even worth putting away. This is just work our way through the rest of this pile. My favorite thing to do is to wash clothes right before I go on a trip and then pack all those clothes so that I don't have to, I'm only folding them for packing purposes. Mm -hmm. That makes me feel like a God. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Fairly low bar, but I'm into it. All right. What's another small wish that one of our listeners have for the future? Oh, this one's so cute. It's from Elise. I wish that my daughter will continue to pronounce the word animals as aminals for as long as developmentally appropriate. Aminals. Is there anything cuter than a kid asking for some aminals crackers? Oh, no. Spoken as a as a dad who now has a twenty eight year old daughter, I still have a I have a picture on my on my wall here, which I did unpack, Elena. Congratulations! My daughter sitting. Her name starts with A, and she's sitting in front of a pancake that I had cut into the shape of an A. <laughs> she was right about the age where she might have said aminals. Uh huh. And I look at that picture every day and just think, How are you twenty eight right now? Wow! How is that happening? Yeah. Wow. All right. Thank you so much to everyone who responded to our listener question. We've got another one. Coming up for next week's show, which we will reveal in just a few minutes. Uh, So do stay tuned for that. All right. We have been talking about the future this week on the show. And our next guest has some very interesting thoughts about it, uh, which she's developed by looking into the past. Jill Lepore is a professor of American history at Harvard. She's a staff writer at The New Yorker. And she's the author of the new book, If Then, How the Simulmatics Corporation Invented the Future, which tells the story of the data science firm that pioneered the use of computer simulations to predict human behavior. The New York Review of Books calls it a plausible, untold origin story for our current panopticon. I don't know what most of those words uh, actually mean. <laughs> well said, though. Well pronounced. <laughs> but it sounds pretty official. <laughs> One other quick programming note before we get into this. Elena, you know how... I usually give our guests a little uh, kind of spiel about how, you know, we're recording at home. And yeah. if, if your child walks into the room or, or if your pet makes some noise, it's really not a big deal Don't because everyone it. knows. Yeah. yeah. What, what was the name of uh, Jill's dog? Oh, it was uh, Greta, as in okay. you regretta telling her that. <laughs> I have never wanted to withdraw that statement more than when we started chatting with the incredibly smart and interesting Jill Lepore and the incredibly loud and frequent dog, Greta, who decided to show up in the background. It's worth it, though. So please do stick around for this conversation. It was part of the Portland Book Festival. This is our chat with Jill Lepore. Jill Lepore, welcome to Livewire. Hey. 
Hi, you guys. Nice to see you. This uh, book was totally fascinating and covering something I had zero previous awareness of, which happens a lot, I feel like, when I read your work. Uh, I'm curious, how, how did you first hear about the Simulmatics Corporation? Like, when was the first time you heard the word Simulmatics? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was some years after I heard it that I learned how to pronounce it. So I'm very impressed that you got it right on the first oh. shot. Excellent. Um, I've been practicing all morning. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Um, yeah, so 2015, I had an assignment from The New Yorker to write about the history of polling because polling seemed to be in somewhat of disarray. This was, as you recall, uh, right around the time of the Brexit vote, which had been mispolled. And there was a lot of anticipation that the mm. 2016 election polls would be wrong. There was a big discussion about polling so I read a lot of the history of polling. It seemed to me pretty clear that polling was being pretty fast replaced by data science or, you know, predictive analytics. Like, why would you bother to call people up and talk to them on the phone for 90 minutes and answer them a bunch of questions when you could just track their behavior online and extract their data and maybe even sell it? Like, what, like there's so much you can do with people's data. Um, so then I was really curious, when did that transformation begin? Because, you know, we know about, you know, Cambridge Analytica or Civis Analytics or, you know, we know about these political and data analysis companies now, but where did they start? And I it came across a kind of stray reference to this thing called the Simulmatics Project uh, that was done in 1959 and 1960 for the Democratic National Committee and then for um, the Kennedy campaign. And it just seemed really early to me. Like, how are they doing data science in 1959 mm -hmm. and providing election advice to Kennedy in 1959 in that way. So... I looked for the records of the corporation and I couldn't find them, but I did find that over at MIT, the guy who was one of the founders of the company had, had donated his papers, which hadn't been cataloged yet. And it was so interesting in a way that was surprised me because I'm not a historian of corporations or uh, not even especially a historian of technology. And um, so I decided I had to write a book about it. By the way, if, if folks are wondering uh, who is being co-interviewed with Jill, it's Greta the Great Dane, who is... <laughs> Who's whining a in lot the other of dog. room, and I can't um, figure out why. Uh-oh. Yeah. Uh, do you want to go check on her really quick? Let me see if I can just go. I can, uh, I can try to hold One forth second. on, I'll try to hold forth on Simulmatics myself, which Elena, I don't think is going to be nearly as informed. I will say, if you do want to read this book, I, I highly uh, recommend it. I also recommend the audio book. Because Jill yes. does all the voices. She does the voice of John F. Kennedy, it's, who we're going to hear about, and <laughs> like, um, yeah. uh, LBJ. And uh, Jill, we're, we're going on about your incredible audiobook <laughs> skills. Like, I mean, I know I, you had that's range. That's like John F. Kennedy. It's Oscar-worthy. The... <laughs> My John F. Kennedy. That's really all I got. That's really all I've got is Kennedy. Let me just rewind a little bit, because uh, you were talking about trying to figure out what this Simulmatics thing was that was credited with or at least they claimed the credit for having helped Kennedy win his election. But I, I guess for people that haven't read the book yet and don't really know, what was Simulmatics? Like, what were they trying to do? Yeah, so the company's name, which is super weird and difficult to pronounce, is a mishmash of simulation and automatic, Simulmatics. And they thought that it would be a word like cybernetics that would be the er term by which we would describe 
what came mm. to be called artificial intelligence. But simulmatics was sort of kind of supposed to mean the same thing, the automated simulation of human behavior. So um, my favorite sort of one sentence description of what the company proposed to do came from its stock offering when the company went public in 1961. And its mission statement was the company proposes to engage in the estimation of probable human behavior by way of computer technology. <laughs> I just thought like, what are they even, what are these people smoking? It's 1959, 1960, 61. Right. What are they going to, how are they right. going to do that? Like we can barely do that now. Right. Just, uh, yeah, the ambition of that. Computers right? were like the size of shopping malls at that point. Yeah, like right, right. Like an airport not... hangar. <laughs> um, yeah, and yeah. they didn't really have any data. Anyway, so what they proposed to do is kind of basically the the business plan of most companies today, right? They Where they want to kind of gather data about people, come up with a model of a population, simulate the behavior of that population, whether it's consumer choices or voting choices um, uh, or political action of, of another sort. And in order to be able to predict that act, that behavior, and then um, advise about how you could offer targeted messages to that population to change its behavior. So if you think about if you think about it this way, if it's the 1950s and you want to predict human behavior with a computer, well, what could you possibly do? Really, the only thing you possibly do would be mm -hmm. try to predict an election, right? Because you'd need a lot of data to have a mathematical model of human behavior. So, but democracies generate their own data because we have election returns, and then we also have public opinion right. polling, and then we have census data. So they took all that stuff. And they did quite brilliant work with these punch cards, <laughs> put them into a machine, wrote some code, but they called their program the people machine because uh, there was this sort of like a slick advertising way to talk about what they were trying to sell, which was a service to political campaigns and, you know, retailers. We could, we can predict how people will respond to your messages. And so they, they got hooked up with the Kennedy campaign because well, one, like you said, this was something that they could kind of measure, have a before and after with the election. And also one of the founders was sort of a very progressive guy, right? One of the Simulmatics founders really wanted to try to use this as a way of advancing kind of liberal causes. Yeah. So um, if you think about the politics of the 1950s, so Dwight Eisenhower, Republican, is elected in 1952 and then reelected in 1956. And Democrats by 1960 are really desperate to get the White House back. And they've had very little success against Eisenhower because Roosevelt's New Deal coalition from the 1930s has fallen apart. Roosevelt was able to bring black voters into the Democratic Party. Um, but black voters left the Democratic Party uh, after 1948 when the Dixiecrat Party sort of splintered off because Democrats just re refused to act on civil rights, refused to act on civil rights and continued to kowtow to Southern cons white conservatives. So... Uh, Eisenhower was able to pull black voters back into the Republican Party. And Ed Greenfield, who was the founder of Simulmatics, was an ad guy who'd worked on Democratic campaigns in the 1950s. And he was so frustrated as so many liberals were. Greenfield thought if they could come up with a mathematical argument, if they could come up with really exciting proof that black voters would make the difference in what were then called the doubtful states or the swing states, because black voters, of course, are still disenfranchised huh. throughout the South. We should still call them the doubtful states. Don't you think? Like, it's just better. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't think a lot has really changed. Yes. Right. So <laughs> black voters are disenfranchised throughout the South, but there were a lot of black voters in the North and they voted. And so the whole point of the people machine 
was to convince the Democratic Party that black votes matter, that if the, to, to run a simulation, a sort of an if then program that said, if the party reaches out to black voters with a strong civil rights message, then black voters will vote for the Democratic candidate. Now that said, like, it's 1960. Right. Think about what else was going on in 1960. There were sit-ins across the South, like starting in February, the Greensboro lunch counter sit-ins. Like, did you really need to build this giant people machine right. in order to figure out right. what mm -hmm. do black voters want? Well, I mean, geez, it's like it's, it's such a the sort of the mystification of the political ideas of women and people right. of color is a weird sub-theme of this whole story. This is the Livewire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We are talking to the writer and historian Jill Lepore about her new book, If Then, How the Simulmatics Corporation Invented the Future. I thought it was interesting too, Jill, how much suspicion there was around computers back then, considering there was like only a couple of them in the country, it seemed to loom pretty large in people's minds. Like they were really worried about jobs being taken, about, you know, candidates making decisions based on what a computer told them to do. Like, I'm proud of how suspicious people were about this stuff. Think about the sensibility about computing from, um, you know, Dr. Strangelove in 1964 or 2001 mm -hmm. in 1968, right? There's an enormous suspicion of these giant machines that might control our minds or control our destinies, right? That is the default reaction. They're these giant, scary things. Weirdly, the smaller they get, the more dangerous they are, but the less we're afraid of them when we really should be much more afraid uh -huh. of them. There's this kind of weird paradox of computing. Um, so the 1960s are obsessed with thinking about our moment. Like there's all this futurism in the 60s, which is like, ooh, what will the world be like in the 21st century? And people write these essays and they make these predictions and it's like, you know, everybody's a Nostradamus. And they say things like, like the guy who founded Simulmatics, the si research scientist who's at the head of it says, we keep going this direction. By 2018, everybody will have their own personal newspaper. That'll be really bad for politics because no one will be able to have common cause. So parties will die and get hollowed out. Really? <laughs> I'm curious, Jill, because you obviously did so much research on this and so much thinking about data and how it's used. Did the writing of this book actually change anything about your personal behavior around like your technology and stuff? Or do you just, is it way more front of mind for you now when you like turn on your phone and think about how everything's just being, you know, farmed out and sold off to all these different entities? Yes, but I think the reverse is also true. And that is like my paranoia about that probably led me to the project. It, it sort of spoke to me, like even mm. that first day in the archives, because what became clear looking through this this political scientist at the old Asola pool at MIT, looking through his papers, not just his records about working for Simulmatics, but all of his other research over the course of a long career going back to the Second World War, is that he was trained to conduct psychological warfare, right? That's what behavioral science has its origins in, right? Psychological warfare is, mm -hmm. is the work of, you know, figuring out how your enemy thinks, sending messages to your enemy and, and influencing your enemy's views, changing them. You can largely with misinformation, but sometimes with information, right? You want to change their behavior. So somehow that really clicked for me. I don't know. I, like I have this experience like at the end of a day when I've been like scrolling through the newspaper online and I don't know, you know, maybe watching a clip of something on YouTube and then also do whatever other things I'm doing, on whatever other apps I'm using. At the end of the day, you sometimes feel like 
someone's been sort of messing with your brain, like as if you're in a 1960s like conspiracy yeah. theory Hollywood thriller. And, that, and, and to me, that was yeah. like, oh, yeah. I had this like aha moment in the arc. It's like, so, oh, because all this stuff comes from psychological warfare. Like capture your attention, distract your attention, interrupt your thinking, send you a message, convince you to change your mind, make you act in a way that you would otherwise not act. Like that's happened to me all day long. No wonder I feel so messed up. <laughs> I mean, like that for me was really yeah. illuminating in the archive because then I thought like, and it starts like, with these guys, they're doing something that is, you know, theoretically so well-intentioned here, trying to, you know, get the Democratic Party to take a stronger position on civil rights, but they're all trained in um, and entirely uncritical of psychological warfare. Um, that's the that's the work they did in the Second mm. World War. That's what they've been doing in the Cold War. So much of the Cold War is about that, right? The, the war of ideas. You know, we talk, think about the arms race, but it was called also the mind race. That somehow for me was like a missing link in how I understood what comes down to us by way of Silicon Valley and social media and, you know, that interference with your way of kind of controlling your own sequence of thought. I don't know, it just explained a lot. Well, Jill Laporte, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Livewire today. We really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, you guys. Take care. Bye-bye. That was uh, Jill Lepore and also her dog Greta <laughs> right here on Livewire. They joined us as part of the Portland Book Festival. Uh, Jill's latest book is If Then, How the Simulmatics Corporation Invented the Future. It is amazing and it is available now. This is Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we will be right back. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season, formerly known as Tea Chai Tay. Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream earl grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, we've been talking about the future on the show this week, um, but let's take a moment to be present, shall we? Our musical guests this hour, they're an indie folk duo. They're a married couple whose latest work explores living fully, even in moments of fear, which, you know, those moments have been readily available <laughs> for the past 18 months or so. Yep. The New York Times says their music translates the agonies and ecstasies of lockdown into a cosmic hootenanny. This is Abigail and Sean of the Bengsons, who joined us right here on Livewire last year. Take a listen. Abigail and Sean Bankson, welcome to the Livewire House Party. Oh, thank, thank you. you. It feels amazing to be here. Yeah. Thank you I so feel much. Like my mood has already improved just mm -hmm. from the sound check we were just doing with mm -hmm. you both. <laughs> <laughs> Will you throw a good party, man? You guys are exuding so much positivity and energy, and, and uh, I guess it's uh, not a surprise that you put out this amazing song that, that people are really kind of going crazy for on the internet. How, how did this Keep Going song like start out as an idea? Yeah, we, uh, uh, you know, we were working on a, a theater piece doing the music for a, a play in Louisville when uh, the, uh, the shutdown happened. Um, and then we, uh, we scooted up to my folks in Dayton a couple hours away. And then um, 
the Black Lives Matter protests began and we were trying to do what we could from there. And uh, but we really didn't know if we'd ever work again. You know, like it was like yeah. everything we do is live and uh, everything yeah. stopped. But the uh, man who runs the theater in Louisville, the Actors Theater, Robert, uh, called us up and asked us if we would make a thing for their online season. And, uh, you know, and he is uh, he is a black man and a lot of his staff are BIPOC folks. And they were marching every day in Louisville and then trying to keep their theater alive at night. Um, and he said, like, as bad as things are right now, this was back in the summer, he said, come the fall, come the winter, it's going to be so dark and mm-hmm. so bleak. And so he said, like, will you please just make something for us that helps us here? And this is part of a hour-long piece that we made for them. This song is pretty much improvised, right? Uh, do you even know what we're about to hear? Who knows? Jeez. Ah, wow. I love yeah. it. Maybe you'll sing a verse. Yeah. I don't know. Mm. All right. Well, this is exciting. I think this is definitely a first of a kind uh, for our show, but yeah. we're really excited to have you here. Um, uh, this is the Banksons uh, performing the Keep Going song. Are you okay? Are you all right? Are you okay? I hope you're 
body is whole tonight. Oh, and if your if your heart is breaking, I hope that it's breaking open. And if your breath is shaking, I hope that it's shaking through. And I hope and I hope hope that you've watched a lot of really great television, like a lot of it. And I hope that you find a hand lotion that actually makes your skin feel better. And I hope that you have enough to eat. I hope you've been getting enough sleep. And I hope that you have enough good company or enough good memory to last you a long time. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going on, keep going on. This is a is a fire and it cleans my mind out and it makes me ready to listen and I pray my pain is a river that flows to the ocean that connects my pain to yours and I pray oh I pray oh I pray that my happiness is like pollen and it flies to you and it pollinates your joy oh boy oh boy is that possible well we don't know Making this up as we go, we have to make it up as we go. The keep going song, the keep going song. Oh, we are making it up. We're making it up as we go. Keep going, keep going, keep going on, keep going on. Song. And I pray that when we meet again, that the world has changed into the world that we are imagining now together. That the world has become the world that we are planting inside of ourselves for each other and for our ancestors and for our kids. Ooh. And we're gonna start, we're gonna start. It's a rough beginning, it's all I've got. It's just a rough beginning to offer you. We just gotta start. We're just gonna start by singing some songs in a tiny little space together. We're just gonna play some songs for you, and we hope that when we hear each other, that you will feel just a little bit less alone. We will feel a little bit less alone in the work and in the hurt, and we will be together tonight somehow. Wherever this is, whenever this is, wherever this is, whenever this is. We'll sing that keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going on. Keep going on. We'll sing it together. We'll sing it for the live wire, for the house party. We'll keep going on. We'll keep going on. That was the Banksons right here on Livewire. Something we very much needed in our life, I think. Uh, their album, The Keep Going Song, Live From Our Home at the End of the World, is available online right now. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. We are going to be chatting with the always hilarious and interesting writer Gary Steingart about his new book, Our Country Friends. It's being described as the great 
American pandemic novel. Uh, we're also going to hear some stand-up comedy from Atsuko Okatsuka, friend of the show, and we'll have some music from The Lowest Pair. And as always, uh, we will be looking to get your answers to our listener question. Elena, what are we going to be asking the Livewire listeners? Tell us the kindest thing a friend has ever done for you. Aw, that's a yeah. nice thought. Aww. Okay, if you've got a story of kindness from a friend that you want to tell us about, you can hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. We are at Livewire Radio. All right, that is going to do it for this episode of the show. A huge thanks to our guests, Ichioma Oluo, Jill Lepore, and the Banksons. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Special thanks this week to Amanda Bullock and the Portland Book Festival. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Stephanie Moore is our social media manager. Our music is composed by A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the state of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. LiveWire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Michael Rutledge of Boulder, Colorado. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. For Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire crew, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you. <laughs>